seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. And uh, I'd also invite you just to tear off a little strip of your bulletin. And uh, the other passage we're going to be looking at today is found in Luke chapter 17. Uh, But we'll begin in Romans 4. I think it'd be helpful to lay Luke 17 alongside the two verses I want to focus on today in Romans 4. So uh, that's also going to be one we're going to be spending a little bit of time in. So I'll just give you a few seconds to flip there. I love the sound of those pages flipping. Luke 17 and Romans 4. And before we uh, dig in and uh, begin to exegete this scripture, draw out what God has for us in it, I think it'd be important that we pause and ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate uh, the passage before us. So uh, let's just uh, take this moment and pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll get to work. If you would, please bow with me. Father in heaven, we come to you today, as we just sang a few moments ago, Lord, we come needy, we come naked, we come desperate, and we come looking to you for your grace. Father, as we consider the text that we have here today, we see that Abraham was strengthened in his faith, and that's what we pray you would do in our hearts this morning. All your people from time to time experience doubt. All of your people from time to time hesitate to fully cast themselves upon your promises. Is it true? Will God uphold me? Is he actually good? We don't say such things out out loud, Lord, but from time to time, these little fears nag at us. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that you would just strengthen our faith. But show us, God, how that is to happen and what we need to do to draw closer to you. Illuminate this passage before us through your spirit. We pray according to the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you ever have doubts? Do you ever hesitate to fully buy in to what God is telling you. I'm sure we've all felt that way, and it's natural for us to feel that way from time to time. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters a centurion who's described as having great faith. He is requested to go to the, Lord, to, go to the centurion's house to heal his son, and as he's drawing near to the house, the centurion becomes aware that Jesus is approaching as though he's to enter into his house, and he sends a servant, and the servant says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you to come under my roof. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority." With soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, a Greek word there, thamadzo, it says he marveled. It's the strongest word for marvel. You could also translate it shocked. He was shocked. Jesus marveled at the faith of the centurion, and he said, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Is that the kind of faith that you want to have? The kind of faith that makes Christ marvel? I pray it is. I pray it is. 
Matthew chooses that Greek word thamazo to emphasize it. It's only used in one other place in the Gospels when talking about Jesus' opinion of someone else's faith. It's used here to show that Jesus marveled at the greatness of the centurion's faith, but it's also used to describe Jesus being marveling or being shocked at the total lack of faith of those that he was trying to minister to in the town of Nazareth where he grew up. Do you see that irony? Do you see the the dichotomy there? This centurion who's a Gentile, I mean, we don't really know what his spiritual resume was. We don't know how familiar he was with the scriptures. We don't know whether he attended synagogue, whether he went to worship the Lord. We have very little information about this centurion, save for the fact that he's a centurion. He's a Roman soldier. He's there by the command of the Caesar of Rome to hold the Jewish people under subjection. I mean, that's really all we know. Those are the only details we're given. His resume then, his spiritual resume is pretty thin. But then we look at Nazareth, Jews who lived there, who went to synagogue every Saturday, who knew their Torah, who read their Bibles faithfully, and not only that, but had Jesus grow up in their midst and they knew him. In the one instance, Jesus marvels because this man who, as far as we know, had no experience, no understanding of the Jewish scriptures, still identified Jesus as the Christ and understood that Jesus didn't actually have to lay a physical hand to heal his servant. And he marveled. And then those who knew the scriptures well, whom he had grown up with, says he marveled because they did not believe. My prayer is that your faith this morning, would be strengthened to make Jesus marvel in the good way. Not that your faith, or we might say that your unbelief would be strengthened in such a way as to make Jesus marvel in a bad way. That's my prayer for you this morning. If you're here and you've struggled with doubts, if there's ever been moments where you've hesitated, where you've questioned whether or not you could really just throw yourself on the mercy of God and bank all on his promises, then I want you to consider this morning the example of Abraham. Here's a guy who was told when he was in his 70s that God was going to rescue the world through his offspring, through his progeny after him. And he makes this promise that Abraham is going to have a child as Abraham is a 70-year-old. A 70-year-old. This last week, my wife has been quite sick. And uh, the only reason I share this with you this morning, uh, obviously pray for her that she would recover and get better. But I've been up every single night, starting Thursday night, Friday night, and yes, last night. So three straight nights now, I've been up every night with her, helping her as she's been sick. And I'm so tired. It's like my poor wife, but also I am so tired. Now, the only reason I mention that is because as I'm there with my wife late at night in the middle of the night, I'm reminded of when my kids were young. Now, I am, I'm not going to tell you exactly how old I am, but I'm between 40 and 50 years of age, put it that way. I'm not 100. And if I can barely handle being up late at night with my wife, who is not the same as a small infant child whom you have to do far more for, then can you imagine the challenge and the promise that is presented to Abraham as a 70-year-old? 
wow, I'm going to have a child. I'm 70 years old. That's a blessing. But the struggle, not only for him as he's getting older, is that his ability to actually have children is diminishing. It says in the text that he considered his body as good as dead. But we come to our critical verse this morning. What I want you to draw your attention to, if you're like Abraham, maybe you would be tempted to doubt. Maybe you'd be tempted to question, is this true? Can I actually trust God with this? I mean, it doesn't seem likely. It doesn't seem possible even. I mean, for this really to work out, there's got to be a miracle, something incredible beyond physical, just normal, natural, physical processes is going to have to unfold in order for this to happen. That's the idea in the text here. And I want to draw your attention this morning to two verses in particular. Chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Look at this. It says, No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. So distrust was not there. He was fully convinced. If you're familiar with the story of Abraham, you'll recall that it sounded like at times he was not fully convinced. Paul is speaking here from the vantage point of the end of his life. And we understand that faith was a process for Abraham, just as it's a process for all of us. It started off with him saying, yes, I believe, yes, I trust. Of course, he goes down to Egypt at one point, and the king of Egypt finds his wife attractive. So he says, you know what, she's my sister, and, and he hands her over, and you're thinking, wait a minute, you're going you're gonna to need her later uh, if you're going to realize the promises that God has made to you. And yet, here's Abraham handing her over at a different point, He's getting older, and he still doesn't have a child. So Sarah says, well, here's my servant, Hagar. Let's try to have the child using my servant, not me, but her. And again, you're thinking to yourself, this isn't exactly what God promised. And so you see in the life of Abraham, it is a process. He had doubts, or you might say there were moments in which he thought he could make the promise come true utilizing other resources. In other words, he was going to bring what he could to the table, and time and again, God was going to remind him, no, God is the one who's going to fulfill the promise. Looking at the end of his life, Paul makes this broad statement here concerning salvation. He says, when we look back to the patriarch of faith, the grandfather of faith in Abraham, he is saying no distrust made him waver. That must be a concluding statement. Not an initial statement. That must be a concluding assessment, not an initial assessment. He says, when you look at Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But notice this. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He grew stronger in his belief, the text tells us, as He was glorifying God. Now, I just want to step back out of Romans, and I want to lay another passage alongside of this for us to consider this morning. I invite you to turn with me to Luke. Let's go to Luke chapter 17, and I want to pick it up here in uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 5 to 10. So go to Luke 17. In order to help us understand this expression that Abraham grew stronger in in his faith, I'd like us to consider a similar request that the disciples made. They asked Jesus, Jesus, they said, help us grow in our faith. They said, help us increase in our faith. We find this in Luke chapter 17, verse 5. says, the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. That's their request. Increase our faith. Help us grow stronger in our faith. 
And the Lord then answers the question. And here's what he says. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Verse 7, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Is that really what you say to your servant when he's done serving you? It's a rhetorical question. And Jesus continues in verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress yourself properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And then afterwards, you can eat and drink. Isn't that what, a, what a, a, uh, the owner of the house says to the servant? Doesn't he make the servant come in from the field and still continue to serve him? Indeed, that is the way that it happens. Verse 9, does the owner of the house, does he then thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. Really strange response to the question, Lord, increase our faith. Now, this is going to take some meditation here because essentially they say, God, we need our faith to be strengthened. And his response to that is to say, number one, faith the size of a mustard seed will move mulberry trees. It'll do things. And also, you guys need to understand that... uh, you serve God, you're his servants. And at the end of the day, when you've done everything you can do, you need to just say, we were but unprofitable servants. That's, that's his response. Now, Jesus is good, and he's giving good statements. So in order for us to really understand how this response to the question increase our faith, how is this a good blessing? How is this a positive response? We're going to have to just think hard on this passage for a second. So listen closely. In Luke chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus helps the disciples in two ways, both of which what he essentially is doing is he's telling them the truth. So even in the way that Jesus responds, he shows us that faith comes first from hearing the truth. If we would grow in our faith, We have to come face to face with the scriptures. We have to come face to face with the Lord who speaks in the scriptures. And sometimes he's going to say some hard things. The response is not to scratch our head and say, huh, I don't get it, and quit on him. That will not help us grow in our faith. He's going to say some hard things, and we're going to have to chew on those hard things and dig a little deeper. But there are certain things that we can draw out of this right off the bat. Knowing certain things should increase our faith. They say, Lord, increase our faith. He doesn't do any kind of weird abracadabra, hocus-pocus magic trick. He doesn't lay his hands on their heads or put his hand on their heart and say, have faith. And then they are just suddenly strong in their faith. They say, Lord, increase our faith, and he begins to teach. So to increase your faith will require listening to Jesus and knowing certain things that he teaches. There are two things I want to draw our attention to, actually three, but two preliminary, and then we come to the third one. The first is that Christ strengthens our faith by telling us, if you look in verse 6, that the crucial issue in accomplishing great things to advance the kingdom of God is not the quantity of your faith, but the power of God. That's so important. 
the, the crucial issue here is not the quantity of your faith, but doing great things for the kingdom of God rests in God's hands, never in how much faith you have. He says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. By referring, Jesus, by referring to this tiny mustard seed after being asked about increasing faith, what Jesus is doing is he's deflecting attention away from the quantity to the object. It's not how much faith you have, it's where you're placing it. God is the one who moves the mulberry tree. And it doesn't depend decisively on the quantity of our faith, but on his power and his wisdom and his love. In knowing this, we are helped then not to worry about how much faith we have, and we are inspired to continue to keep our focus on Christ. That's crucial. It ought to call into question then the whole premise of this argument. Increase my faith? Are we staring at our faith? Are we engaging in a form of what I like to call spiritual navel-gazing? The response right off the hop seems to be your focus needs to be on God. But that brings us to the second thing. Secondly, Jesus helps our faith grow by telling us in verses 7 to 10 that when we have done all that we are commanded to do, we are still dependent on grace. He gives this illustration, and you might want to read it again for yourself later today, but he gives this illustration in verses 7 to 10, and the gist of it is that the owner of a slave does not become a debtor to the slave no matter how much work the slave does. God is never in our debt, no matter how faithfully we serve him. That's crucial. Jesus is never our debtor. God is never our debtor. And verse 10 sums it up. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We're always going to be God's debt. And never is it the reverse. And we'll never be able to pay this debt. And nor are we ever meant to pay the debt. We're always to depend on upon God's grace, always. We're never to work our way up out of debt. We're never going to arrive at a place where we don't depend upon God. When it says in verse 9 that the owner does not thank the slave, the idiom for thank here is quite provocative if you think about it. I mean, are we really expecting to do such great things for God that God's going to come to us and say, oh, thank you so much. I couldn't have gotten that done without you. I mean, Jesus is really shocking them. And all of this in response to their question, God, help increase our faith. This is mind-boggling, so let's continue to dig just a little bit more. They never, God never says thank you to them. The idea, I think the idea then is that this thanks, the idea here is that it's a response to God's grace. The reason the owner doesn't thank the slave is that the servant is not giving the owner more than what the owner deserves. He's not treating the owner with grace Grace, of course, you'll recall, is being treated better than you deserve. And that's how it is with us in relation to God. We can never treat God with grace. We can never give him more than he deserves, which means that he never owes us any thanks. So instead, he's always giving us more than what we deserve, and we are always to be saying thank you to him. 
So the lesson for us is that when we have done all that we should do, and this is when we've prayed as fervently as we should pray, when we've read our Bibles as deeply as we know we should be reading our Bibles, when we've loved others and we've put others ahead of ourselves, when we've worshipped, when we've put everything out except focusing on God and doing everything God has called us to do, when we've done all of that consistently and reverentially and persistently, at the end of the day, God does not owe us any thank yous. That's important. Instead, in that moment, we will at that moment relate to him still, having done all he's commanded us to do, we will relate to him still as debtors to his grace. Now, this is a great encouragement to faith. You're like, I'm not seeing it. How do you figure? This is a great encouragement to faith. Why? Because it means that God is just as free to bless us before we get our act together, as he is to bless us after we get our act together. Praise God. So you say, oh, I need to get stronger in my faith. I should work real hard. Well, yeah, there are many things God calls you to do. But when God increases your faith, he doesn't need you to do anything. That is awesome. I cannot tell you how often people come to me and say, I'd really like to grow stronger in my faith, and so I'm going to recommit this year. I'm going to go to Bible studies. I'm going to go to prayer meetings. I'm going to be at all the Sunday morning worship services. I'm going to go to all the tenant talks. And I say in response to that, hallelujah, praise God, you should do all of those things, but God does not need any of those things to begin growing you spiritually, to begin increasing your faith. God is the one who grows and increases our faith. As it says in the book of Hebrews, he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is the one that holds himself forward as the object for us to believe in, and he gives us the opportunity to place our trust in him. And the moment we do, God has enabled our faith. He's written that story on our heart. And as Paul says in Philippians, he's going to bring it to completion, this good work that he has started in us. God is going to do it, no matter what. So you say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. That is a great encouragement. Since we are unworthy slaves before, and since we're unworthy slaves after, it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's in God's hands. Therefore, he is free to help us before and after we get our act together. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, this is just really kind of walking on the edge of just go out and live your life however you want and do whatever you want, pastor. That sounds pretty, pretty, that's getting edgy. That's getting almost heretical. Is that really where you're going with that? Brings us to the third thing we see in this text. Continue to walk with me. While we have this great incentive to trust God, knowing that it doesn't depend on us having done anything to earn his favor, we also have to notice that there is a call in this passage all the way throughout to do what is our duty. You may have missed it, but it's quite there. It is very much so there. Look back at verse 8. In verse 8, it says, And afterward, after you've served the master, after you've provided for the master, after you've done your duty for the master, afterward, he says, you will eat and drink. And then in the very last verse, he says, 
having done all that we are required to do, having done all that we are commanded to do, having done that, having actually served God, then we say we are but unworthy servants. So notice this. When the disciples ask Jesus to increase their faith, Jesus teaches them that God can increase their faith and bless them both before and after they've done all that they're commanded to do, but their focus should not be on the increase of their faith. Their focus then should be on the service to the king. That is really the thrust of what Jesus is getting at here in Luke chapter 17. If God increases our faith at a time and a place of his choosing, and if it's entirely based on his grace, meaning we can't ever earn his blessing, we simply have to wait for him to begin growing our faith. If we're trusting him to bless us, if we're trusting him to increase our faith, then why not just leave it in his hands and get on with the business and the tasks to which he has called us? That seems to be the overarching implication of this text. And indeed, that is the thrust of what Paul is saying regarding Abraham back in Romans chapter 4. Flip back there. Join me there for just a second. Look at what's going on here. He is in his 70s when he gets the call to leave his homeland and to go to a land that God's going to show him. And he's told he's going to have a child, and he's like 70. And by the time he actually has a child, he's 100 years old. And they've, they've gone through this whole saga. At one point, Sarah laughs because she's like, how is this ever going to work? God comes and says, you're going to have a child. And she starts to laugh. And he's like, oh, did Sarah laugh? And she's like, no, I didn't laugh. But she's laughing because she finds it so hilarious that as a 90-year-old woman with her husband being a 100-year-old man, that they're going to have a baby at this point in their life. But the text tells us while Sarah's laughing, Abraham is believing. And the text tells us, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith by sitting there day after day and looking down and navel-gazing at his faith and also considering his dead corpse of a body. Is that what the text says? No. If Moses, beg your pardon, if Abraham's response had been to continuously just look down at himself, look at himself in the mirror, and every day be focusing in on himself and what he was capable of doing, I dare say this would be a whole different story. And the text would read entirely different. Yeah, distrust and doubt began to enter into the equation here because Moses, I keep saying that, Abraham's focus is on himself and it's not on God. But that's not what the text says. Hallelujah. The text says, no distrust made him waver. He grew stronger in his faith doing what? It says he grew stronger in his faith as he was glorifying God. So what is happening here is God has made a promise to Abraham. Got it right that time. God has made a promise to Abraham And Abraham has received that promise and said, okay, God's going to do it. And I'm going to leave it with the Lord. And I'm going to glorify God. You're here this morning. Thank you for being here and worshiping the Lord. We've already seen from Luke chapter 17 that a part of growing in your faith requires hearing the word of the Lord, hearing the truth, and being nurtured by it. But how many times, just be honest with yourself, as you're just sitting there in your seat there, how many times have you awakened on a Sunday morning and you said, you know what, I'm not really sure what the purpose of going to church is this morning, I just don't feel like it. You've had a rough week, things didn't go the way you expected, you weren't in your word, 
Now you're beginning to question whether or not God is really there for you. Really, at the end of the day, what does God need my worship for anyway? We begin to entertain all of these thoughts. And we say, I'm not going to go to church today. We have this this thought, I'm not going to go to church today because I'm not really sure what I'll get out of it. I've said it. I know you've said it as well. But who is worship about in that moment? I'm not sure I'll go and worship the Lord because I'm not sure what I will get out of it. You've made it about you. In other words, you've taken your eyes off of the promises of God. You've, you've, you've taken your eyes off of God. You've looked at promises. You've realized they've been slow in being fulfilled. You've started to look at your own self. Your focus has completely shifted away from the Lord, and now you're entertaining doubts. Now you're having hesitation. Now you're struggling with your faith. And the conclusion of that is you just start to further shift away. The response needs to be when we're struggling with our faith, when we're entertaining doubts, when we have these hesitations, it should not be to just stop everything or to just justify ourselves just sitting at home looking at ourselves in the mirror and asking questions. No, the response needs to be the one that Abraham had. Get your eyes off of yourself and focus on Christ. Worship the Lord. You want your faith to grow stronger? Go to church. You want your faith to grow stronger? Dig into the word. You want your faith to grow stronger? Glorify God in what you're doing. You say, Pastor, is that really what this text is saying? It absolutely is. And you don't have to flip there. You can just listen. I want to share something with you. It says in Genesis, when when God calls Abraham out of Ur, when he's going to show him the promised land that he's going to take him to, he says, it says in uh, Genesis, okay, my notes are getting a little out of order here. Got got to find it. Well, I, I must be missing a page. I'll just flip there and read this to you. It's from Genesis chapter 12. You can join, there, join me there if you'd like, but you certainly don't have to. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, and he says, go to the land that I'm going to show you. And he makes these incredible promises, and we've seen this so many times, but we need to see it again in terms of what Abraham does in response to this. He says he's going to bless him, and he's going to give him a child and all of this says, go from your country, this is Genesis 12, verses 1 and following, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. So God says, I'm going to give you a child. He's 75 years old. On his way, he goes. He gets to Canaan. They still don't have a baby. They get to Canaan, and it says in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oaks at Moreh, And that the time that the Canaanites were in the land, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Verse 8, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and he called upon the name of the Lord. 
When it says he called upon the name of the Lord, that's the classic expression in Genesis for worship. God says to Abram, go. I'm going to give you a child. Abram goes. He meets God in the land that God has called to show him. And there he, sa- he settles in a town called Shechem, near a town called Shechem. And he builds an altar so that he can worship God. From there, he spies out the rest of the land. He makes his way to this other place. It's just south of Jerusalem called Bethel. And what does he do there? He builds an altar and he worships God. The idea we have from the text here is that Abraham wasn't just sitting around. He was worshiping. And he wasn't merely just worshiping. He was evangelizing. You say evangelizing? That is correct. A little later on in our text, it tells us that what Abraham was doing was he was telling the inhabitants of the land about the good news of God, the God whom he worshipped. Eventually, as he's uh, living here in this land, his nephew, Lot, gets kidnapped and dragged away by this evil king, Shedolarmor, and Abraham settles up all of his fighting men, and they all got on horses, and they, they go after this guy. After they defeat him, Shedolarmor, the king of Sodom comes to him and says, let me give you all of the spoils of the land. Let me give you all the riches and all, all the plunder of this king that we've defeated. And Genesis 14 tells us that Abram's response was this. The king of Sodom said to Abram, take these goods for yourself. Take this plunder for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And then he mentions several of the names of the men. He's responding to this king, king of Sodom, which has an interesting story all to itself that we won't get into today. And his response is, I appreciate the offer for you to give me money, but I am hoping in God. He has promised me the entirety of this land. He's worshiping and he's proclaiming the name of God. When we step back and we look at this text today, it is very much so the case that you and I, we have doubts. We will hesitate at times, to fully throw ourselves onto the promises of God. The wicked thing that Satan does is that he whispers into our hearts, that's right. Not too sure about these promises. Not too sure about this God that you're worshiping. Why don't you just draw further and further away from him? But the man of faith that Paul is calling us to look up to in Romans chapter 4, did not draw further and further away. He built altars, he worshiped, and he evangelized and proclaimed the name of this God whom he was hoping in for a child at 100 years of age. No distrust made him waver. 
but he grew strong in his faith as he glorified God. Now you're sitting there and you're saying, okay, Paul is quite clear that uh, he's glorifying God. You've mentioned two examples of this. Is worship really is worship really the means by which we strengthen in our faith? It is one of several means, along with Bible study and prayer. But I don't want to ever just assume anything in the text. We should see this for ourselves. And I want you to flip back to Romans chapter 1. The great issue that Paul is struggling with here is that people do not glorify God. And in Romans chapter 1, he points this out to us. Regarding all the world, they know that there is a God. They know that they should honor him. They know that they should glorify him. They know that they should worship him. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 23. This world that rejects God, they do so, as Paul says, like this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God has given them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Verse 23 says they exchanged the glory. That is, they knew they should glorify God, but they traded his glory for something else. What did they trade it for? Well, it says in verse 23, they traded it for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. So they had the glory of God, but rather than making God that thing which was supreme in their life, they handed it over They set it aside, and they embraced something else, namely, as Paul's talking about here, they exchanged it for images reflecting man or bugs or insects or creeping things on the ground. Now, when you push this out and you say, this isn't going to be the most supreme thing in my life, this thing over here, this instead is going to be the most supreme thing in my life, the world around us doesn't necessarily think that that involves worship, but it does. And Paul shows us that which is why he says in verse 25, they exchanged the truth for a lie, and notice what they inevitably end up doing. They exchanged the truth for a lie, and they worship the lie. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are all worshipers. Not just in this room, but in all the world. We all worship something. We are created to worship. We are meant to worship. And what the text is telling us here is that whatever we value the most, that is the thing that we will worship. Which means that whenever you are tempted not to worship God, you need to do a heart check. Am I believing in the promises of God? Am I truly upholding God as the surpassing value and joy of my life? Or am I, in a subtle, perhaps self-deceived way, trading that for something else? You wake up in the morning, and you feel like, oh, I don't want to go to church today. I, you know, I'm not sure there's any value in that. I'm not really sure I'll get anything out of that. What exchange are you making in that moment? 
you are in fact worshiping. Know that. You are in fact worshiping. But the question is, what are you worshiping? You say, Pastor, I need more faith then. I need, I need help. I need to get to church. I know all of this. And yes, I can tell you, you know all of this because you're hearing the word of God. Now you're coming to the reality that there's a duty, there's a call God has placed on your life that you would delight in him, that you would find your satisfaction and your joy in him, that you would go to church, that you would worship him. And here we are just being brutally honest with ourselves and we're saying we struggle to do that. I understand The call might be, increase my faith, right? Give me more faith. I got good news. God doesn't need you to obey for him to start strengthening your faith. You can cry out to God right now and you say, God, increase my faith. Take away these doubts. Take away these hesitations. I no longer want to waver. I no longer want to go back and forth in my mind about whether or not you're good or true or beautiful or all that kind of stuff. I want you to strengthen my faith and I confess to you I'm having these doubts. You can say that to God and he can strengthen your faith today or he can strengthen your faith 10 years from now. What has he called you to do today? Whether you see the value in it, whether your eyes have been opened to behold the glory of worship or not, go to church and worship the Lord. And when we have done all that God has called us to do, we say, we are but unworthy servants. The promise is there. The good news is this. God will strengthen your faith, and he doesn't need your performance to do so. But the good news is also there. Worship God. Pray to God. Dig into your word. Now, you hear all that, and you're thinking, that, that sounds tough. And it is. Whether we want to see the value or not, God is precious and infinitely valuable. If we struggle to believe that, we ask him to help us to continue believing that, and the promise is there that in grace, he will meet that request at a time and a place of his choosing. And what do we do in the meantime? Whether we see it or not, whether we're feeling it in the emotions of our heart or not, we continue to worship God. Now, I want you to know, it's not in the text, but I want you to know that there is incredible blessing in being here every Sunday. My faith is strengthened. I hear the testimonies of dear brothers and sisters coming through the door. We catch up briefly in the foyer before the worship service. We catch up more at length after the worship service is over. I am bolstered by your faith. I hear your testimonies of what God has been doing in your life, and I often think to myself, man, how rich is that? What, what an incredible miracle. How great it is that God showed up and did this amazing thing in this person's life. And then I look at my week, and I'm like, I, I don't know that I had anything really positive happen in my week. I, at least I couldn't, I couldn't see it. I, I, I must have missed it. But being here with all of you, I know it's true. God was there with me just as he was there with you. 
I may not see it, but it doesn't change the fact that Christ was present. Jesus says in Matthew 28, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you believe that? We somehow don't seem to believe it as much when we're getting out of bed early on a Sunday morning, like, oh, I don't want to go to church. Jesus is there with you right now. We love the Lord. He's always with us. The call is for us to just continue holding his hand and walking with him, believing that sooner or later he'll open our eyes to see the beauty as we've taken every step of faith. There's this great, uh, this great passage It's from C.S. Lewis' Chronicles of Narnia. It's from Prince Caspian. And uh, in that particular book, there's this wonderful exchange between Lucy, one of the characters in the book, and Aslan. He's He's a lion. He is the character representing Christ. And Lucy uh, encounters Aslan. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger than when I saw you last. She's, she's looking at this lion who represents Christ, and she's saying, you've gotten bigger. You've grown up. You've gotten larger. Wow, there's so much more of you. You've gotten so more powerful, more amazing. And Aslan responds. He says, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are? From a child's perspective, as we get older, we get bigger. She's gotten older, she's gotten bigger, but she encounters Aslan, and her remark is, no, you've gotten bigger. And his statement is, no, you've gotten bigger, I'm still the same size. So she says, you've gotten older, little one. And he says, it's not because you are? And he responds definitively, I am not. I am the same as I always was. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. You have doubts? You have hesitations? I do too. Keep chasing after Jesus Christ. You will find him bigger. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to have a strong faith like the centurion, a faith at which you marvel. Never let us buy the lie that Satan peddles, where we could be standing right next to you and our faith has become such unbelief that we do not believe in you at all. We want a faith that causes you to marvel in a good way, not a faith that causes you to marvel in a bad way. God, let the people here of this church, let all the brothers and sisters of First Baptist grow stronger in their faith as they glorify you. Help us to glorify you as we wait on you to strengthen our faith. Do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.